This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. If you're like me and have had an interest in creating your own podcast but don't really know where to get started, let me tell you about Anchor. Anchor is the completely free creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Once you've finished recording, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard across all podcast streaming platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership right from your very first episode. It's everything that you need to make and distribute a podcast all in one place. To get started, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, my name is Jeremy Haig, psychic medium, tarot reader, and proud nerd of the occult and the spiritual. I've been talking to the dead since before I can remember. Hearing their stories and listening to their lessons radically changed my life and taught me to become more curious and peel back the layers of the world around me. On this podcast, I invite you on a journey as we discuss spirituality hot topics with specialists and practitioners from across the witchcraft community, pull and explore monthly collective tarot readings, and recount lost or forgotten paranormal stories from around the world. This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Sleepover Edition of the podcast. Slumber Party Rules! Hence the roaring fire in the background. I hope it translates on microphone because it is snap, crackle, pop. lovely. What are we drinking this morning? We cannot have Cheyenne <laughs> from Ouija Boards of Midnight Marks I on the podcast. Oh, Alexa. Oh, hold on, you dirty off. bitch. Right. We cannot have Cheyenne from Ouija Boards of Midnight Marks on the podcast and not have a what are you drinking moment. Yes, I told Jeremy that I didn't know what to do with my hands and that I wasn't going to be able to record without a beverage. So we have some Trader Joe's spiced ciders, anybody surprised, with autumn harvest tea and a little sprinkle of cinnamon. And some rosemary. And some rosemary as well. And we simmered that on the stove yesterday for hours. Hours and hours. During our seance slumber party, which I can't, I can't drop that bomb on this podcast and not like, <laughs> talk about it. We had a seance slumber party. And now the episode. Right? We're um, having a, a slow it was, morning. It was fabulous. We're still waking up and coming alive again a little bit, I think. Yeah, we're getting there. That seance hangover is so real. Yes. It was so beautiful, though. But it was beautiful. So And necessary. it was so loving. And we just had such a nice little core coven of people. And... Shout ugh. out to our little coven that was able to join us. If you're listening to this podcast episode, we love you. Yes. It, it was, was magical. Such a special experience. We did, in addition to seance, we made beautiful food together. Oh, and so yummy. we sat in ritual multiple times throughout the entire day doing all sorts of little magical intention setting. And it was just lovely. There was so much care and attention to detail and just true intimacy and vulnerability in a way that 
I feel like only this little group gets. And yeah. it's so nice to be able to share that with a wider audience. Too. I think highlights for me too are also we made an effort to bring some very tactile, hands-on things yes. to kind of... Um, and I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about magic is when you have the opportunity to amplify that by using your hands or uh, your voice in a podcast like this or whatever. It helps kind of just like seal the deal a little yes. bit. So we brought some pine cones from Central City Cemetery. So if you've listened to that episode, you know our connection to that cemetery and kind of the background behind it. But we brought some pine cones and left some offerings at the cemetery in exchange for them. And we brought them back and we cut up some strips of paper and wrote down our intentions that we wanted to birth out of this little seed vessel, this pine cone seed. And we rolled them all up and we put them inside all of the little holes in the pine cones. And then we put all of those into the fire and watched them burn. And it was beautiful. It was so fun. And then we also took some bay leaves and we wrote out uh, some things that we wanted to leave behind. Some things we weren't ready to carry forward anymore. That was one of my favorite things we did because we did it as a collective. We did. Instead of, you know, we each did our own individual intention settings for our pine cones. But the bay leaves we decided to do just group banishments of... And we went through a whole slew of things. I mean, at least 20 different things that we all chimed in and banished together. And then we'd throw each individual leaf in the fire and it would snap and fizzle and crackle and little holes would rip in it. It's such a, yeah, such a tactile little ritual. And it's very pleasing, just sensorily. Yeah. And we did some wish paper out on the balcony, which I had never done before. And that was so adorable. Yes, some flying wish paper. You light it and kind of set some intentions behind it. And then as it burns, it lifts off the ground and flies away. It's really pretty. It's it's, a, it's kind cute. of a lovely little <laughs> magical moment. Um, and then finally, after like a good amount of time meditating together and doing some of these rituals. and We built uh, an altar. We, we built a beautiful oh, altar together. Oh, we built a together. beautiful altar. There are actually pictures on my Instagram. Well, there were at the time. So I'll be sure to post some along with this episode because how could you not? It was a beautiful. Uh, it was such a good altar. It's Sam still- from Toil and Trouble um, here in Denver made these beautiful knot candles that we used as kind of an unbinding cord cutting ritual as a group. And that was just gorgeous and lovely. Her ritual candles are my absolute favorite. She's magic. So grateful to all of our magical friends who yes. have skills for things like this that we can then bring together in ritual. And then I guess lastly, we went into a true seance and kind of lifted the veil um, as, a, as a group in a circle. Um, and we played with some pendulums. We played with um, my EMF uh, detector, which is an electro- electromagnetic field detector. And we had that and we sat it in front of us and it just picks up when there are spikes in electromagnetic energy, which is often considered to be a, a good way to document and validate um, an entity appearing or kind of a swirl of energy being created which is really interesting because it had been flatlined pretty much all day and as soon as we really got the altar up and humming because i would say that's the best description for it it was just the energy around it got humming and that thing was just sitting there going off consistently yeah but then i think the thing that startled us the most in a really great way about our seance is we put the emf in the middle of our circle And our first question was, are there any entities, any spirits here to speak with us tonight? And that thing went Went crazy. (laughs) And I I will completely admit, while I 100% believe in ghosts, believe in the EMF, I was not holding my breath for us to really get that much on it tonight, or last night. Um, I just, I 
I didn't know if that... I live in an apartment complex now. I live in Thornton, Colorado. It's not like I live out in the middle of nowhere where that energy has, like, space and time to... I don't know. I just had, like... I had some reservations on that particular tool being a useful one. And I just sat here giggling like crazy because I was like, oh. (laughs) Yeah. No, it was wild how responsive that was in correspondence with the other tools we were using. No, so we used uh, we used my EMF detector. We used dowsing rods, which was new. We didn't have dowsing rods when we did our seance together no. last time. Which also brings up like the other biggest part of last night. Yes, which was it was a complete full circle moment, not planned whatsoever, on accident of the first seance Jeremy and I attended together, which is essentially the night we met. Um, and and became featured, internet friends. Featured on your second episode. It's our second, second episode of Ouija second Boards. Second or third Marks. episode, yeah, of Ouija Boards and Midnight Marks season one is Baby's First Seance. Um, and so you can hear all about our like initial initial experience. I mentioned Jeremy by like visual cues in that episode, but I didn't actually know you yeah, we had, enough like, to call you yet. out yet. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was just a really cool full circle moment to realize that that was like the anniversary of our friendship. Yeah. Too. I literally fell on the same day as a year from when we met, which is beautiful and lovely. Yeah. And we were joined by um, your friend that was there for that. Yes. Very first. My friend is- who took my co-hosts um, ticket from the original. It was just, it was so full circle, full circle in all of the ways. Yeah, I think. Is there anything else we want to share on that? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's good. That paints you a nice little picture. Yeah. We'll post some cute, cute photos. But it was just such a lovely night, and it was the group of people that I so enjoy doing magic with the most because I think it's just such an honest, intentional group. Yeah. And um, we really we hold just so much safe space and openness for each other to just exist and so I really just appreciated all of that connection yeah. to you which is the, the thing about seance that I love you know it rarely ever looks how yeah how it looks in movies or TV or any sort of media it's usually very subtle um, but it still has such a large impact in a way that you never quite expect, which yeah. I think is always really beautiful. It's the little moments that validate the journeys that we're already on. That's what makes Seance so beautiful, I think. Yes. It's those little moments that like tie into the things that we're each working on individually or going through separately and kind of brings it all together. And yeah. Like a gi- gigant- well, like a gigantic full circle totally. coven experience. But I just wanted to share that moment with all of you. It was so special. So now this morning, we just made some breakfast. We're drinking our hot cider. Yes. We've got the animals around us. My it's cat sleeping. So cozy. Willie's with us. My boyfriend's asleep next to me on the couch, <laughs> just enjoying the story. We've still got some residual candles on the altar going. The altar is still going. It's just, yeah. And it just felt like a good story morning. For sure. So I figured I have a story ready. Let's record an episode together. Let's do this. It's also been a while since I've done some of these stories with other people because I've been doing some of these solo for a little bit. And I thought this would be this would be a great way to shake up how yes. it's been going down, shake up the episodes a you little bit. You were also very kind because I demanded to be put into another episode because I, mean, I was I was missing my podcast because everybody... we're busy brewing <laughs> season three. And I was like, hey, I really miss listening to myself talk. Can it's I come hang out with you? <laughs> I again, as always, have told you little to nothing about the yes, location. Yes, I have no that we're idea what about. we're talking about today. 
We've also done quite a few episodes stepping outside of Colorado, so I thought it would be really important to pick a Colorado story and come back to home for a minute. So today we're talking about the town of Redstone, Colorado, deep in the Rockies. Okay. Hey, Paranormal Weirdos. I truly hope you're enjoying this week's episode so far. If you're enjoying When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, I humbly welcome you to consider making a financial contribution to the When Walls Can Talk tip jar to ensure I can continue to create episodes like this one for seasons to come. Your financial support helps to cover operating costs like recording equipment, editing software, marketing materials, music rights, and helps with the purchase of books, historical publications, and research materials to ensure that every episode is as professional and as well-constructed as we possibly can. If you're interested in making a small contribution, and let me tell you that no amount is too little, please feel free to hop on over to PayPal where you can tip us through my email, Jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com or on Cash App through Money Sign Jeremy Haig. That's Money Sign J E R E M Y H A I G. There's also a support link in the show notes for this and every episode where you can support us directly as well. Thank you so much for listening to my little sales pitch and for sticking with me through this episode so far. And now, let's get back to the show. And our story today begins a little bit differently than many of the others that we've been discussing from the same era and other episodes. Around 1865, while Americans flocked west at the end of the Civil War in search of gold, which was what we talked about in the Cheeseman episode, John Cleveland Osgood saw the potential in another so far untapped resource that could be found deep in the Rocky Mountains. And that was the thing that launched his career. And this item was coal. Yeah. Through it, Osgood would go on to build a massive coal empire and become known as the Fuel King of the West. Similar to the robber barons of the era, Osgood felt that he came from a status and industrial mindset that was, quote, above the law. He and his fellow um, masterminds of the American... Yeah. <laughs> rolling our, we are rolling our eyes Insert eye roll here. I, I'm I'm how, I, I'm quoting how they saw themselves. We're talking like the Rockefellers and the like. Yeah. Well, when you sorry sidebar, when you said Fuel King, the only thing that flashed in my head was the Portlandia Pullout King. Episode. Oh my god! <laughs> and I was like, it's that kind of energy, yes. right? Like I'm the Pullout King. Correct. <laughs> yeah, they felt that they deserved more than one vote in government decisions. Um, that they were the backbone of an unspoken American business uh, aristocracy. They believed that there was an, uh, while uns, like, like a hush hush, we all understand what's going on. Yeah. But like, we have the money, we make the decisions. And he did come from that mindset. He doesn't keep that mindset, but he did come from that mindset. Um, in a sense, they believed that they knew better what was good for the government and the American people than anybody else. Born in New York City in 1851, John Cleveland Osgood came from deep family roots in America being direct descendants of the Puritans, who emigrated from England. And yet by the age of nine, John found himself orphaned, as both his parents had died. Sad. Both he and his siblings would be then broken up and shipped off among his various extended family members. So John was sent with his Quaker relatives in Rhode Island, where he put himself through boarding school, attended the Cooper Institute in New York, considered like the poor man's Harvard at the time, 
He ends up graduating with an accounting degree at the age of 19 and always wanted to present the appearance of being an extremely driven individual. So to that end, he didn't drink uh, because he wanted to make an impression on his employers that, oh, he, he never drinks. I've never seen him drink. Um, he actively saved his money, which also allowed him to help support all of his siblings, which are now, who are now scattered I mean, all over the country. I appreciate the responsibility. Absolutely. No, I agree. <laughs> um, I don't actually know how many siblings he had, but it definitely sounded like it was a number. Quite a bit. By 1874, when John is 23 years old, he becomes the cashier of the First National Bank in Burlington, Iowa. Four years later, at the age of 27, he manages to buy the White Breast Fuel and Mining Company, which is where his Colorado journey begins. Okay. In the wake of an avalanche deep in the Rocky Mountains, some miners saw a coal seam expose itself in the mountains, but deeming it inconsequential and of absolutely no value, they sold it to John for more or less nothing. They just kind of handed him the chunk of land, like, here's some coal, knock yourself out, have at it. Right. Surrounded by some of the biggest names in the business world, the sought-after socialites, and the elite from across the country, John takes this opportunity and creates the largest mining industry in the West. So John officially establishes the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, which is heavily sustained by the manufacture and distribution of a product known as Coke. And Coke is the industrial fuel that's used by smelters and steel mills and is created by purifying coal in sealed ovens at, like, extreme heats. Okay. So Osgood's Coke ovens were in operation 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And while this operation was extremely profitable, it was an extraordinary strain on his employees. Yeah. The coal barons, like Osgood, did not feel it was required of them to obey labor laws, so their workers were subjected to an extreme neglect, exhaustive schedules, and little to no supplies or accommodations. So in many of the coal camps, almost all of the workers were immigrants, with a large portion being unable to read or write. So they didn't have anything to know to defend themselves. Right. As a result, they were often forced to build their homes out of whatever scraps they could find laying around the ovens. Um, and they would live in tents or little tiny shacks that they would build themselves right behind the ovens, even in the dead of winter. Wow. Yeah. As the tensions grew, many of the men working the Coke ovens wanted to unionize due to all of this crazy, yeah. unfair treatment that they're experiencing. But Osgood refused to let a single union organizer set foot on any one of his properties. Um, and his employees were paid in scrip, which is a currency, Ugh. yeah, which is only usable at his own country store that he ran. So it's not, we, we have a very, um... I hate rich people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. After the labor strike of 1901, Americans became more aware of the conditions that these miners were being subjected to, and facing public outcry, Osgood changed his management style to a social experiment known as welfare capitalism. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Bear with me here. Okay. <laughs> it's an interesting swing from one side to another, honestly. Yeah. In order to demonstrate to the world his new industrial concept, Osgood decides to build what is now known as the city of Redstone. The whole damn thing. Okay. At the time, he was a businessman and saw that his workers would be far more productive if they had a good living and good working conditions, even if for even if for no other reason more than to enhance his bottom line. Like he still understood that, like, wow, this is. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, it, it makes sense. 
to does. his bottom line to do this. So, he began to recognize that it was up to him to provide a quality of life for those working within his company. And with the assistance of his socialist, Dr. Richard Corwin, he implemented this industrial and sociological experiment to see if providing a better life for the worker and his family, if then they would be less likely to join a union, which would be eventually less likely to strike. Right. Or less likely to continue migrating on further west. Yeah. So what I'm about to tell you that he does sounds wonderful. Sounds so idyllic. It really does. And it... Kind of is, theoretically. Yeah. But, like, let's set up the fact that this is coming on multi- from multiple directions as a plus to his business. Right. Like, I just think that's him. Yeah. Like, let's call a spade a spade here. While originally a ploy for more profits, the experiment actually took off and allowed for some deep engagement within their mini-society for Dr. Osgood and Dr. Or for Osgood and Dr. Corwin. So they actually were very engaged in the social scape that they have set up um, and they began to speak openly about addressing the needs of the, of the working class responding to public health problems acting upon the sufferings of disease and providing better sanitation for his workers so around 1899 construction began on some of the homes for the miners families many of whom can still be seen today all over redstone so most of the uh, single family homes standing in redstone are, are all from 1899 and they wow. were all built for the miners and they are all um i believe all of these homes were assigned individual architects so they all had like a little bit of a unique style um it was not just a like a quick build yeah like a quick fabricate or what do you call those like yeah like development style yeah exactly they didn't just matches. throw throw them yeah. all yeah um the redstone inn was constructed and served as a lodge for the single workers who didn't need to rent a whole house followed by the redstone fire station a beautiful brick school for the miners' children, and a three-story clubhouse with a 300-seat auditorium so Osgood could provide theater and opera productions to entertain his developing town. Overall, the goal was to create a better workforce for the future by providing opportunities for the lower and middle classes which they couldn't find for themselves elsewhere. So if you're providing enough to your employees that they cannot find elsewhere, they're not going to join a union, they're not going to strike, and they're not going to migrate further west. That's, like, what we're getting at. Okay. Soon this idea was taking off in mining camps all over the quickly developing west. However, Redstone remained the crowning jewel of welfare capitalism. So he's doing it the best. Yes. He is doing it the best, and it had never been done before. Right. And it's, to my knowledge, one of the first mining... I'm air quoting mining because obviously this was a different form of mining. This is this is coal transformation. Yeah. Um, it's one of the first ones that I know of in the mountains that did this style of... Estes Park is similar. We've talked about this. Yeah. Where like the whole town is developed by one individual. But that was developed to be a recreational town. Yeah. Um, like a, a high-end escape or high-end resort. This was... Uh, a business. Right. Big business. It was originally for Osgood's second wife, Alma Regina Shelgram, that Osgood began construct that Osgood began construction on an opulent forty two room Tudor style mansion nicknamed the Jewel of the Rockies, and located one mile up the mountain overlooking his village. So he's already developed he has his village, it exists, and he's like, Okay, I need my castle. Now I need my I mansion. I need my I need my mansion. 
but it was Alma who made the greatest impression on Redstone's early 20th century inhabitants. Rumored to have been a Swedish countess before emigrating to the United States, Alma became known as Lady Bountiful for the generosity that she showed towards the coal workers and their families. During the life of the Redstone Castle, it has borne many names. Cleveholm Manor, Osgood Castle, and later Redstone Castle after the family departed the home. Construction on the home began in 1899, along with the rest of the village, but it was completed in December of 1902. The sprawling castle is steeped in the history and character of the valley. The rocks that adorn the exterior come from right along the Crystal River, so the, the house sits on 2,000 feet of river frontage on the Crystal River. Wow. It's very lovely. Rising out of the hillside and dominating the spiraling front lawn, the Redstone Castle stands three stories tall and starts out with a heavy stone Richardsonian Romanesque style base and then lightens up significantly as it grows taller, featuring Tudor and tower accents. In fact, I'm I love to, a tower. Yeah, I'm going to show you this place. It's so you can envision it. You kind of have to be able to yeah. see it. And there will be pictures, as always, on my Instagram while I pull up this photo. Like, please feel free to take a moment to like pause and hop on over if you want. I'm trying to find like a really pretty. This, I mean, this is it. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't hate that. And this is it now because it has been, and we'll, we're going to get to kind of its history. Yeah, that's it overlooking the front lawn. Wow. Um, this is the Coke ovens. They still exist and you can still visit them. Interesting. And I think that would be a really interesting place to yeah. take the EMF detector because I find that places where people have worked in repetition. Yeah has a lot of intrinsic um interesting like residual practices because you're doing the same thing over Over and over and over 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 again and you have strong emotional responses to the activities that you're doing yeah not always positive not always like it doesn't really matter if you're doing something in repetition with a strong emotional backing it creates like an etching like a um like a record almost in time i think and sometimes those will be on loop and loop and loop and loop and loop and when you're ghost hunting, you can stumble into those loops. Anyway, just really something something interesting. I want to find also... Yeah, that's actually another really good one of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. pretty. And then the inside, we'll get to the inside um, in a second because it's... <laughs> my God. The architectural firm that designed the castle was Bull and Harnoy, which was an architectural team from Denver, comprised of Theodore Davis Bull... He was the socialite with all the contacts, and Frederick Louis Harnoy, who is believed to have done most of the actual work <laughs> in their in their firm. Um, Theodore had the connections. Frederick did the work. Someone pays the money. Yep. <laughs> Among one of the most beloved rooms in the mansion is the great hall, the heart of the home, with twenty foot tall ceilings and an, an imposing stone fireplace adorned with the Osgood family crest. The library boasts beautiful green dyed leather walls <sighs> and an aluminum plate ceiling, far more valuable than gold at the time. Kill me. The music room is designed to reflect the opulence of France, complete with gilded leaf mirrors made from diamond dust. Okay. The dining room is considered to be influenced by Russian statements. It's like deep, deep red with Russian ruby red velvet wall covers, Honduran mahogany furniture and ornate gilded ceilings. The lamps and light fixtures for the entire home were designed by Tiffany & Co. of New York, specifically and exclusively 
for the mansion. Fun little story. When they... We're going to get to how this building got... Um, it has a journey. This building goes through a freaking journey. Um, and the more recent people who've renovated, they've... I don't want to say everything yet. But when they were renovating, I'll say this, they found spares of the Tiffany & Co. Uh, okay. Uh, light fixtures. And they've also had some recreated by, like, lighting specialists. But they say you can always tell the Tiffany ones because they're, like, 5,000 pounds. They're so freaking heavy. Wow. Um, but Tiffany & Co. has also helped to restore. They've sent some of them back, and they have helped restore them and send them back to the property. Just fun ties. Cool. And it has similar ties, too, to some of the other properties we've talked about, like Brown Palace, Tiffany & Co. did a lot of the stuff there. Yeah. Grove Patterson had some stuff from Tiffany & Co. there, too. Osgood installed a hydroelectric, a hydroelectric plant. Wow, I'm, words are tough the morning after a seance. <laughs> Osgood installed a hydroelectric. <laughs> you know what? Drinky juice, Shelby. Hydroelectric plant. Yes. Just up the river from the home, which provided the entire castle with electricity, a massive luxury for a small town buried deep in the Rocky Mountains. By comparison, half of Denver and New York still didn't have electricity at this time. Wow. One of the most spectacular features of the castle is the balloon ceilings on the upper floors. Almost like giant curved archways with rounded edges, the balloon ceilings gave the rooms extra tall 10-foot ceilings and were a massive feat to create in 1900. Yeah. So it's like those... Like all the rooms just like uh, balloon up. It's like pretty. the whole room is an arch kind of. Yeah. Um, and those were all hand done and were a massive feat to, to undertake. Redstone Castle was designed for entertaining exclusively. From the billiards room, which proudly displays the immense walnut billiards table weighing over 4,000 pounds, to the large collection of mounted heads from the family's big game hunting, the castle was designed to house and welcome the many notable industrialists and Osgood's peers like John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and <laughs> Jay Gould, who would come to stay at the mansion on a regular basis. Wow. Together they would smoke cigars shoot pool, and conspire of their next big industrial moves. Needless to say, many large business decisions that shaped the course of the future for not only Colorado, but the entire country, occurred here behind closed doors. The coal miners didn't build any homes in the style of Redstone Castle, so it's believed that Austrian stonemasons and Italian metal workers are to thank for most of the construction of the home. The library and the music room required artists from Europe to be imported full-time to do the work. The mansion itself has 42 rooms, 10 of which are still under an historic easement, meaning that there literally cannot be a single change to the permanent fixtures or the furniture layout at any time, hmm. even by the owners. Luckily, the current owners feel that it is their duty to keep these majestic rooms as they were back in their glory days, and they never want to change them. Several of those rooms either have original pineapple stenciling on the walls or original damask silk wall coverings, like in the music room, or the dining room's red velvet. Each of the 14 fireplaces in the many guest suites each sport its own unique artisanal tile imported from all over the world. The home sports marble fireplaces, marble furnishings, and while Osgood owned his own marble quarry, he wasn't developing the exquisite white marble that we see in the house today. So everything in the home is an imported Italian marble. <laughs> 
as no expense was intended to right. be spared of during course. this building. Ironically, the Italians have now purchased the marble quarry that was his 12 miles away and it is now considered to be the best marble in the world. And the best marble in the world comes from Colorado. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Most of the furnishings in the home date back to the Osgoods as well. In fact, a shocking 60% of the furniture is original. The sun porch was an addition to the home in 1903, and it is... In- pretty unclear if it was part of the original plans or if it was added on after the fact regardless the porch provided sweeping views of the lawns and the estate that could be enjoyed all year round osgood's castle stood as a powerful monument to his success however he would not go on to enjoy it for very long one never do do right (laughs) almost every episode we've covered is like well and then he died six months later (laughs) one of the problems he faced is that Even though he had a massive vision and a massive amount of money at his disposal, he didn't have enough money to to fully complete his vision for Redstone the way he wanted to. He overextended himself fairly significantly. He attempted to borrow from John D. Rockefeller. However, in exchange, Rockefeller demanded control of the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, Company. to which Osgood agreed. Osgood maintained ownership of the castle and of the village itself as they were part of his personal estate. However, the market for coal and coke was also quickly drying up, and Redstone became a ghost town by 1909 when the Colorado Basin Mine was closed. By 1911, Osgood left Redstone more or less for good. He loved the castle and called it his beloved residence, but it was more or less mothballed until 1924 when he returned to pass his final days in the home. In 1924, after marrying for the third time, Osgood returns to spend another million dollars refurbishing the home in an effort to transform it into a resort. They reopen the castle together and some of the cottages originally for the miners as a mountain resort under the name Crystal River Lodge. Okay. Osgood's health was pretty quickly deteriorating, however. He developed a form of stomach cancer and passed in 1926 at the age of 75. When he died, he left the home to his third wife, Lucille, who was only in her late 20s at the time. The burden of the upkeep of the castle, the inn, and the village proved to be far more than she could carry, coupled with the market crash of 1929, and Lucille pretty much left the Redstone in the early 1930s and sold the castle in the 1940s. From there, the Redstone went into a holding pattern, transferring from owner to owner, each trying to revitalize the landmark estate, but never fully being able to accomplish their vision. As each plan failed the future of the Redstone Castle became bleaker and bleaker. In 1971, with the support of Pitkin County, Ken Johnson, the publisher of the Grand Junction Sentinel, put the building on the National Register of Historic Places. Many don't realize that while a fantastic resource and a wonderful list of historic properties, the National Register of Historic Places doesn't actually have really any legal teeth in any way until the federal government gets involved. Interesting. One of the largest threats to the property came in 1974 when a developmental plan fell through and the property was deemed too costly to repair. Talks of demolition began to circulate and the federal government discussed options to dismantle the home and sell it off in pieces. That is when Peter Martin, a retired attorney, and Daryl Munsell, a retired college professor, went after the IRS to ensure that the home was preserved. After an intense legal battle, it was agreed that the national government and the IRS would comply with the National Historical Preservation Act and protect the home. 
Today, the property is widely regarded as one of the most important buildings in Colorado and one of the only ones to have both an external and internal conservation easement. That is wildly uncommon. Interesting. The placing of the easements in and of itself is a wildly large accomplishment by a group of determined legal professionals and historical enthusiasts who very well could have given the property a second chance at, at life after a date with the wrecking ball. The current owners and their daughters used to live by and drive by the property on their way to their own mountain cabin and always used to wonder what it would be like to live there. It is remarkable, too, how much the worth of the home was decreasing at that time as well. It sold for $6 million in 2000, $4 million in 2005, and was bought for $2 million in 2016. Wow. Which pretty accurately portrays the quick deterioration of the property from being unused for so many years. Yeah. Once the property was purchased, it became clear that they needed to create a serious plan to get a lot of work done and fast before the property could no longer stand. It was at the risk of complete collapse. The night after it was purchased, the new owners met with their architect and drew up a plan of epic proportions on the back of a beer napkin. (laughs) Two years later, that plan was 90% complete. Wow. That being said, what began as a plan to simply clean and maintain quickly changed into a plan to restore and refinish the entire interior. Not a single surface or material was left untouched or unrestored. Wow. Many of the team involved believe that the home looks as good today, if not better, than the day that it opened its doors for the very first time. Redstone ghosts. <laughs> Let's talk about Are we the ready scoops? for the ghosts? I found a bunch uh, of little write-ups. Because there's not a ton of documented stuff because the building was abandoned for so long. For so long. But here's just a little bit about what you can experience if you go stay at the Redstone. Redstone's ghosts are mainly sounds and smells. In particular, the very strong and fleeting smell of cigar smoke. Mr. Osgood was inordinately fond of cigars and smoked them often. Guests who have stayed on the property have spoken of being touched while they slept the smell of fresh lilacs wafting through their room in the dead of winter, and housekeepers have reported seeing reflections of people who are not there and footprints on clean leaf clean... and footprints on clean... fresh... (laughs) (laughs) And footprints on freshly cleaned floors. Boom. Nailed it. Here's a story. Direct story. Okay. This is a story from somebody who visited the property. I saw a female ghost at Redstone Castle approximately 12 years ago. It was the first and only time that I've ever seen one. I was on a business trip on the western slope the 7 to 10 days before Thanksgiving. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. After making several business stops around the area, Pagos Springs, etc., I decided to spend the night at the, Re- at the Redstone Castle and Inn since I had an appointment with a small business in Redstone the following day. The inn was practically deserted, and I got a room on a floor all to myself, according to the receptionist. At the time, I thought, cool, I get the whole floor to myself. After dinner, I took a history book I had brought along and settled down next to the main fireplace and read for over two hours. I was really enjoying the ambiance of the inn and castle. That evening, I went to bed and fell sound asleep. At approximately 4 a.m., I awoke suddenly feeling like there was a presence in my room. I looked ahead and saw a woman, dressed in a long skirt with a long sleeve shirt tucked in. She looked vaguely 1800s, standing in the doorway between the room and the bathroom. 
Her hair was in a bun, and she was watching me. I sensed that she meant no harm and was benign. She just wanted me to know of her presence. Regardless, I was scared shitless. <laughs> I pulled the covers over my head and remained frozen in fear until approximately 7 a.m. when the sun rose. It's funny now, but it certainly wasn't at the time. When I checked out, I told the front desk clerk of my experience. She said others have reported ghosts, but not of a woman. No question in my mind, there's no question in my mind a woman ghost is there. I was in Redstone with my kids and mother in 1994. We stayed on the third floor, and in the middle of the night, I felt a woman's hair wipe across my face. It was odd because I was dead asleep and somehow knew it was a woman's hair. I also somehow knew that it was red hair. It was terrifying since no one else was awake. And it was so bizarre that I was so sure that I knew what it was that had awakened me. I've never forgotten it and always have known that a woman ghost lives in the Osgood Castle in Redstone. My husband and I spent a night in the Redstone Castle in May of 1997. These are all different stories, if you can't tell. <laughs> in the middle of the night, about 3 a.m., I awoke from a nightmare and was laying awake processing what I had just experienced, when suddenly, a newspaper that was sitting on the bottom of the bed flew across the room and landed on the floor of my husband's side of the bed. Neither of us had kicked that newspaper. I had been lying perfectly still. I thought my husband was asleep, but he had also been lying awake and witnessed the flying newspaper himself. It terrified us. We waited restlessly for the sun to come up, and then we got up and packed. We went downstairs and ate breakfast and spent some time in the library. We felt the eerie presence of someone there, so we left the castle quickly. The castle is historic and beautiful, but I'm not sure we will ever have the nerve to stay there again. Hmm. That is the story of the Redstone Castle, Redstone, oh. Colorado, and the mysterious ghosts that still live there. I would love to go stay there. It's really pretty. I want to find some more pictures of the inside for you. I'm going to show you. This is the Russian dining room. Okay. Wow. This is the main hall. This is like what's normally set up with chairs. Oh, beautiful. But when they do like formal events, they seat everybody there. This is, you can kind of see the green leather walls there. That's so cool. Yeah, it's kind of insane. Interesting how many dynasties were started and tumbled in this little area. And very quickly. And very quickly. Despite. And all these castles and like crazy hotels and big beautiful opulent homes that we just have scattered about. Right. Despite insane amounts of money being put into them with the intent of future generations getting to experience them and enjoy them. Yeah. And then collapsing. It's also interesting to, to realize too how how unstable the financial situation yeah. was in this time. Oh, well, and just, I mean, thinking of him overextending himself is not really a hard thing to wrap your brain around when no. you look at just, okay, so Tiffany's doing all of your light fixtures, and, like, did you have to build this billiards table in this room because right. nobody's moving it's it? It's <laughs> And it's in the... That's the other thing, too, is they were talking about the fact that uh, all of this is so deep in the mountains, too. Yeah. Like, that's like, the other thing, is the, the sheer amount of transportation that was involved, um, and then, like, importing, quote-unquote, like, artists as, yeah. like, a product from other countries. 
And, and like, what happens to them when you're done? Do you send them back to their country? What happens? It's wild. It's it's insane. And also, the other thing, too, is I just keep thinking about um, poor third wife being left. Yeah, his widow. The property and, like, what... What do you do with years old, that? all of a sudden you have a multi-million dollar industry that you might have no interest in either, too. Yeah. That's the other thing is... But, yeah. It's so smoky in here. I yeah. I if I should open the door. <laughs> I would love to go visit the ovens, too. Yeah. I know we talked about this already, but it always keeps coming back to my mind. Especially when I was doing research and I was watching some really incredible... There's some really incredible PBS Colorado Experience series on YouTube that talk a lot about a lot of different places and some that we've covered on the show outside of just this one. But seeing some of those so vividly and so visually really helps kind of settle... Yeah. Like, an understanding of, like, what this must have felt like. But, yeah, this was just... It just felt like the perfect no, easy morning good. slumber a party good story. story. We got to talk about beautiful architecture. I'm not mad about it. We got to talk about Colorado again. Some ghosties. But, yeah, I hope you all really enjoyed this episode. Thank you for joining us, as always. Yes, thanks for letting me tag along. Thank you for joining us. And we'll catch you all next time. This has been an episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, written, researched, and edited by your host, Jeremy Haig. I would be honored if you'd consider one friend that you think might enjoy this episode and share it with them. There's nothing that brings me more joy than listening to episodes or songs that my friends recommend. So please share the love with your tribe. Listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment so that this one-man operation can take off to a whole new group of listeners. Please don't forget to visit my website, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com to learn more about me, the show, and to purchase our brand new merch finally available on our online shop. Listeners to the podcast get an exclusive 10% off using the code WITCHCREW at checkout. Don't forget to reach out to me on Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces or email me at jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com. So long, paranormal adventures, and I will see you next time on When Walls Can Talk.